Today's podcast is brought to you by Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com primal and using promo code primal. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Welcome, listeners. And after a year of trying and admiring (laughs) from afar, I have finally secured the incredible interview guest of David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene and many other excellent articles and stories uh, in the realm of sports and research. And you're into all kinds of stuff, huh, Dave? I, I am. And, and first off, I, I apologize. It took so long to get me on here. I didn't expect anyone other than like my mother's book club to read my book. And so I wasn't prepared for sort of the deluge of, of emails. So I appreciate you following up. Well, I think it's, I think undoubtedly the, uh, you know, the seminal book on sports and genetics that's ever been written. I don't think anyone would argue that, especially you or your mom. <laughs> Certainly not my mom. Yeah, but I I didn't know you know when I went into it. You're right. I'm I'm interested in a lot of different things, and uh, going into it, it was just sort of you know 15 of my own deepest questions about the interplay of nature, nurture, and athleticism that had lodged in my head either from my own experience as an athlete uh, or from watching or or talking to other athletes. Uh, so it, it I wasn't uh, prepared to to learn that there is many kind of uh, physiology nerds out there is me, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's great. And you really you went really deep into it and examined some of these notions that we've long held uh, as conventional wisdom, we'll say, that are pretty flawed and uh, misconstrued. And you really went you went at it in the book, and you you pulled no punches. And rather than just offering an opinion, you came out and said, "Look, here's the research. Here's what's going on." And that's um, that's what I think turned a lot of heads and, and got this book so much attention. And I highly recommend uh, listeners read it. But even if not, um, you can search in your um, podcast world for some great shows that you've already done that have talked about the book in detail. So I thought today we would just like kind of jump a little bit to some fun specific topics and get into uh, a little more detail and hear, hearing from you about how those things started and, and where the road took you. Sounds good. Yeah, so one of them is this 10,000-hour rule that has become, it exploded into um, public consciousness and popularity, and you hear people dropping this soundbite all over the place. And for those of you unfamiliar with that, it's the concept that if you put in enough time into anything, you'll become a master. And, oh, Malcolm Gladwell popularized it in uh, one of his books, and it's just taken off and run with it. But you had a little bit of a different take and got into some research. So tell us, tell us where you stand on that one. Yeah, so this idea that, that specifically sort of there's no such thing as innate talent and 10,000 hours of practice is both necessary and sufficient to make anyone an expert in anything. Um, I wasn't all that uh, familiar with it, to be honest, when I started out. It, and 
Um, but as I started reading through uh, skill acquisition literature and science and sports psychology and things like that, it was ubiquitous. Like it, it was everywhere, not just in popular media, uh, because I also heard my colleagues at Sports Illustrated referencing it a lot. But it was really all over the research agenda. And you know, I started to uh, examine it. You know, at, at first I said, well, may- maybe this is true. You know, maybe all these things that look like talent um, are really just built up accumulated practice. And, uh, but then I, I went back to read sort of the primary source literature where it came from. The initial study that, that blew up the 10,000 hour rule was a study of 30 violinists um, at a world famous music academy. And the, the 10 best of them had practiced on average 10,000 hours by the age of 20. And those were the people who could go on to become international soloists. And that's kind of where the 10,000 hour rule grew from. Then it was just sort of extrapolated without evidence to every other activity. And the problem <laughs> was it didn't even really apply to the violinist for a number of reasons. So first was uh, these 30 violinists had already gained admission to a world famous music academy. So that's like the cardinal sin, as statisticians would say, of a restriction of range problem. Uh, so basically, 99.9% of humanity had already been lopped out of the subject sample. So it's like if you wanted to do a study of what leads to basketball skill, and for your sample of subjects, you choose, chose only NBA centers. <laughs> Notice they'd all practiced a lot and concluded, therefore, that only practice got them where they are, not practice plus being seven feet tall, right? because you've restricted the range of height. So first of all, it couldn't make the conclusions that it was making. Second of all, 10,000 hours was just an average of individual differences. And in fact, almost none of the violinists did reach 10,000 hours. It was just an average because a couple people went way over. And so it sort of obscured the individual differences that actually show up in the study of skill acquisition. A great, you know, and I, so I started just sort of looking through all the literature and you'd come across these studies like chess, which skill in chess is learned in a similar manner to perceptual motor skill in sports. Hmm. And it takes 11,053 hours on average to become an international master in chess, but some people have made it by 3,000 hours, and some people are still being tracked at 25,000 hours, and they still haven't made it. <laughs> so it turns out the average really doesn't tell you anything about the real picture of skill acquisition and, and the differences between people. Yeah, we had um, Christopher Smith on the podcast uh, a few months back, and he's um, gained fame as the world record holder in the wonderful sport of speed golf, of which I'm a big uh, proponent of. Mm-hmm. And his whole, he's also a teaching, teaching pro in Portland, Oregon. And his whole uh, approach to learning golf and to helping amateur players get better is to get them playing unconsciously and, you know, uh, blowing the, um, the notion that you have to hit a bunch of balls in practice and that's going to translate to competitive success is, is a misnomer because... When you're hitting balls on the range and hitting the same shot over and over again, um, it doesn't have any application to the intense competitive environment that you face on the golf course and the unique shot that you face one time and don't have the chance to do it over again. And he references brain research where even it goes so far as different parts of the brain light up when you're sitting there on the driving range or the putting green making 23-foot putts in a row. So getting back to that 10,000 hours thing, if you sat there on the practice putting green and hit putt after putt until you accumulated that much time and then teed it up on the first hole in a tournament, you might find yourself shaking like a leaf and having none of those skills that came because they don't transfer directly to competitive environment. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right on a number of levels. I mean, 
it, you know, and, and for one, just doing that sort of repetitive over and over logging the hours kind of activity. I mean, in some ways is like people who go to a gym and lift the same weight, the same number of times every day, like very quickly, you'll have some physiological adaptation and then you won't anymore because you've adapted to that task. So doing it more might stop you from sliding backward, but it isn't going to improve you. And so a big, a big concept now in a lot of elite training is called practice variability, uh. um, which is not focusing in on just that one skill over and over and over. And in fact, when early skill learners do that a lot, they actually seem to plateau earlier than they should. They almost get like stuck in a certain type of rhythm. So I think we're, you know, at, at a lot of the highest levels, that thinking is kind of being reversed in favor of varying almost as much as possible, sometimes even with just sort of general athleticism outside the sport, the activities that are being done. I saw some videos of training for the Chinese diving team, which is, um, you know, despite being a smaller sport, is the greatest sports dynasty in history. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're doing, you know, they'll practice fundamental dives, but then they'll have people purposely do dives that like could never be scored in a competition, just Mm. like goofy stuff. And they'll have them doing uh, you know, other kind of motor skills, like learning how to juggle and practicing like cup stacking while they're doing their planks. And it's all, it's partly for keeping things fun, but also to, to vary up practice because it seems like people that just kind of put in those rote hours, um, it doesn't prepare them for the kind of things they need to do in competition. Right. So maybe there's an element of, uh, keeping it fun and exciting, um, as a, as a critical component to, um, you know, the divers diving day after day after day and getting stale, not only in the body, but in the mind too, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, once you've done a task, you know, so think of when you learn to drive a car, when you first learn to drive a car, you, you sort of, you know, you probably had to think, oh, right turn, hand over hand, you know, whatever. And then pretty soon that, you know, move from the prefrontal cortex, your sort of higher conscious area back to these more primitive areas where you can essentially do it without thinking, right? Like you can do it while putting your makeup on assuming like something unexpected doesn't happen, right? In which case you'll crash. <laughs> but you can basically do it without thinking. So now it's not like by driving for more hours, you're progressing toward being a professional race car driver because you're doing things that your brain has already adapted for that it makes easy and that thus do not make you get better or move toward being a race car driver no matter how many hours you put in of this kind of um, easy to do driving that you've already adapted to. Interesting. Okay, so... Let's say you do have a specific goal, like you want to um, you want to break two minutes in the eight hundred, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty um, straightforward endeavor. You have mm-hmm. to get in pretty darn good shape, and you got to run a couple laps around the track. Mm-hmm. Um, where would it come in to have some practice variability? Yeah, so I, I was I was uh, an eight hundred runner myself. I know, um, and uh, I'm so, trying to beat your time here. I'm, I'm training for it right now. I'm going to need like five years. Gotcha. Um, and the, you know, practice variability actually turned out to be really important for me. When I first started doing it, I saw people putting in a lot of mileage. And so I started putting in mileage, uh, just, you know, working up to more and more and more mileage got up to probably about 90 miles a week of Uh training and it simply did not work for me. And then when I went back to varying things up to actually mixing in some kind of cross training, uh, even a little swimming, hill running, um, plyometrics and, intervals of different lengths, you know, sometimes even intervals, um, that I wouldn't even know until the coach told me we were about to do them. Uh, that worked for me like rocket fuel. And, you know, that's a similar thing I saw actually in Jamaica when I was watching runners train theirs. The, one of the, probably the most famous track club there, it, which would have, you know, it's like 
20 people and it would have finished eighth as a country in the last Olympics, um, <laughs> was they use a grass track, uh, the coach there purposely. And I asked the runners, how long is the track? Because it didn't look like the typical 400 meters. And they didn't even know. They were like, I think it's 320, 330. And so the coach would just, you know, they, they couldn't kind of guess exactly what their workouts here. He'd say like, you know, I want you to run from here to here or two laps around and stop here or whatever. And they didn't even know exactly the distance that it was. He was just always, always varying things up and, and purposely wouldn't tell them the workout until they were right about to start. So they also had to kind of build in some of that mental flexibility, I think. That's great. Uh, and it's, it's so important for um, athletes of all levels, even the, the casual or the amateur enthusiast to, to realize that it doesn't have to be rote and regimented and, and so repetitive. So we have this concept of practice variability that's um, taking the place of that uh, misnomer that it's all about volume, the 10,000 hours. But if it's not about the 10,000 hours, um, let's talk about the high jumpers from the book, because that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was my favorite chapter, another favorite sport of mine. But it was such a dramatic example of the place that genetics plays in high-level athletics. Yeah, so this was this uh, story in this second chapter that I call The Tale of Two High Jumpers. And one of those high jumpers is a guy named Stefan Holm, a Swedish guy who became obsessed with high jump from about the age of five, (laughs) um, you know, and was coached by his father, who didn't really know anything about high jump, but just was kind of a personal mentor. And, you know, Stefan was good early on, but he wasn't uh, great. You know, you wouldn't have picked him out as any kind of prodigy or anything like that. And high jump seems so much like something you either got it or you don't, right? And so you wouldn't think much of a guy who's just good, um, not great. But through his training, I mean, Stefan became obsessed with high jump, and he improved one centimeter a year for 20 straight years until he won uh, the Olympic gold medal in 2004. And he's only about 5'10", 5'11", you know, cleared a bar not much under eight feet. <laughs> um, so he, he tied the record for the highest clearance over his own head. Yeah. Um, and he was, it's funny, because he has all these traits that like we idealize in competitive athletes. He's, he's super competitive. When I first talked to him, he said he didn't have a girlfriend because high jump was his girlfriend. He couldn't cheat on her. Wow. And then, you know, the last time he actually has a, a, a young son now. Um, and the kid's name is Melwin and that's not a typical Swedish name, but his wife liked the name Melvin and Stefan insisted that win be part of the kid's name. <laughs> right? So this is the guy you're talking about. Focused. Yep. Yeah, just a little, um, and then, and, and actually, I think he has a bit of an obsessive personality because now that he's, he's locked his high jump equipment away, he's become obsessed with Legos. Um, wow. So I think he, he throws himself into whatever he does. New hobby. Uh, but in two, 2007 at the World Championships, he came up against a guy that nobody had really heard of, a guy named Donald Thomas. It's actually funny if you watch the intros on YouTube to that event, the, uh, the announcers say something like, and Stefan Holm, the favorite, and Donald Thomas, very much an unknown quantity. Um, and Donald had been a student at a small college in Missouri talking trash at lunch. And the, the best high jumper from the track team who held the school record uh, at 6'8 overheard him and said, you know, you don't even know what it's like to be an athlete in real competition. You wouldn't clear a bar of 6'6. Six six. And Donald says, well, yes, I would. You know, goes home, gets his sneakers. And this guy, this other guy, Carlos, sets a bar at 6'6. Six six, and Donald clears it in a couple steps. And so they keep going up until Donald clears seven feet, never having jumped before, at which point Carlos thinks he's going to hurt himself. You know, takes him over to the coach. As coach, we have a seven-foot high jumper. Coach <laughs> first doesn't believe it, then picks up the phone, calls the next meet, and begs for a late entry. So Donald's there. You know, he doesn't even have a team uniform yet. Clears about seven, five and a half, sets a field house record. Turns pro pretty soon. And with eight months of training, 
faces Stefan Holm in the World Championships and, in fact, beats Stefan Holm in the World Championships. So records the highest center of mass jump ever, but Donald's form was so bad. It's like he looks like he's like riding an invisible deck chair. You know, he's like sitting up while he's going through the air. Looking at the bar while he clears it. Yeah, exactly. And putting his arms behind him because he's not used to falling backwards. So he wins the world championship. I mean, I interviewed him after this. He says, I was like, well, what do you think about high jump? Oh, kind of boring, which is not (laughs) something you hear from a typical world champion, right? And he seems to contradict the 10,000 hours from both directions because he entered on top. Now he's been a pro for over seven years and hasn't improved one centimeter. So he started at the top and hasn't gotten any better. You know, and part of his success turns out is the fact that he has this incredibly long Achilles tendon, which is basically like a spring in the back of your leg that he was born with. Mm. Whereas Stefan, through his training, actually hardened that spring over time. And of course, a spring can store a lot of energy by being either really stiff or really long. So there are two guys, you know, Stefan estimated his lifetime total at 20,000 hours and Donald was pretty close to zero. So like they <laughs> averaged 10,000 hours. Hey, right? they validate the theory. All right. Exactly. It doesn't tell you anything about the reality of, uh, of, of human performance. Hey folks, Brock Armstrong here to tell you about Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses that sell for just a fraction of the price. Casper understands that buying a mattress online can have some consumers sort of wondering about how this is possible. Well, buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free because they offer free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. It's that simple. Statistically, lying on a bed for like four minutes in a showroom has no correlation to whether it's a good bed for you or your family or not. That's why Casper has turned the buying process into a risk-free experience. Casper really understands the importance of truly trying out a mattress that in all reality, you spend a third of your life on. So make sure to go to casper.com primal and use the promo code primal and you'll get $50 towards any mattress purchase. Once again, that's casper.com primal and use the code primal. Now back to the show. So this one thing I'm thinking about, I've thought about a lot uh, in, in pondering these concepts is you have this, this physical genetic gifts, which are so obvious. You're watching the NBA and these guys, of course, have worked hard and all that, but they're also, um, you know, one in a million genetic freaks, just like Donald Thomas, just like everybody on the start line for the Olympic hundred meters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you're talking about Stefan Holm or one of my favorite examples from triathlon, Mike Pig, mm-hmm. um, he had this these genetic particulars, you could say, to the extent that he became obsessed with high jump and, and chose high jump over girlfriends and all that. And that's these are genetic attributes that are very rare and are well adapted to becoming an elite performer. And in Pig's case, if you or the listeners haven't heard of him, he was a guy who was always um, characterized as not very talented natural athlete, but he works harder than anybody else. And it's sort of an unfair um, characterization. But when you think about um, his mindset and his desire to train that was so incredibly strong every single day throughout his career, um, I feel like those are genetic gifts that are right there on a par with the physical stuff. I completely agree with you. And in fact, the, there were a number, some of my own intuitions and guesses um, about nature and nurture of athleticism were overturned in the reporting of the book. And probably the most surprising aspect to me was the chapter where I talked about sort of um, compulsion to train. And so I knew very well from following the physiology that 
things like our brain's dopamine system, you know, the chemical system involved in your sense of, of, of pleasure and reward, whether that's for eating or having sex or doing drugs or exercising or whatever, I knew that that responded to things like our physical activity, making some people you know, want, to, want to do them, reinforce what they did and others maybe not as much. But I didn't know at all that, that scientists who study that area know the reverse is true too, that actually differences in our dopamine system from the get-go can cause some people to have a compulsive drive to train where other people it's really, really difficult uh, for them. They don't feel that same sense of reward um, you know, in, in, in being physically active every day. And it's incredible to, to read some of the mouse models that have been made to simulate human dopamine systems because you can breed really easily mice to be like crazy runners, just wanting to run like totally crazy, just by taking a group and separating the ones that run a little more voluntarily from the ones that run a little less and breeding those groups. In a couple generations, you have these ones that are like total slobs <laughs> and others that are just manic runners. And their dopamine system looks like uh, some ultra endurance athletes and humans, and you can actually give them drugs. Like you can give them drugs and take that away from them. You know, drugs like some ADHD drugs. I mean, ADHD includes a compulsive drive to move around, and you can give this certain drug and, and then satisfy the dopamine system so it doesn't feel the need to do that anymore. And it's, it's kind of amazing. So those, those mice literally become crackheads for exercise. And wow. you can satisfy it by letting them run or by, by drugging them. Um, and I just thought that was fascinating. I mean, one of my favorite interviews was with Pam Reed, the legendary ultramarathon runner, who when I interviewed her, she had just in her mid-50s done, uh, competed in Ironman Triathlon Nationals, and it was in New York, actually. Mm-hmm. And she qualified for Worlds in her mid-50s. And her flight out of LaGuardia Airport was delayed because, of course, it's LaGuardia Airport. Everything's delayed. And when I was talking to her, she was so antsy. This is the day after she... She qualified from National Ironman uh, Championships that she had put her bags away and was running laps around the parking structure, like 200-meter laps around the parking structure while I was interviewing her <laughs> because she so disliked sitting still. I mean, wow. obviously, that's a very extreme example. Um, but, you know, some people, I think that kind of compulsive drive to train comes easily to them. It doesn't mean that other people can't accomplish it, but they might have to work on their environment a heck of a lot harder. It might not come to them as easily. Yeah, I guess uh would involve finding something that you enjoy so much, like Stefan Holm did or like Pam Reed does with her ultra endeavors and, you know, locking into that. That's what we, you know, that's that's the what parents wish for their children and all those kind of things that you, you develop that incredible passion where you just you just go for it. Absolutely. You know, and I think and I think for most people, there is something like that. It's just a rare exception when that thing happens to be what they do for a living also. Um, so I think most people can find that. It's just, it's just uh, difficult for it to be their living. But for some people, I think when it comes to, to actual training or exercise, sometimes something as simple as a training group you know, can be a, a, an environmental manipulation that makes it easier for you to, to, to get up and go do that work. I mean, I look at the guys that I trained with in college, and some of them post-competitive career still compete like crazy and train like crazy, and others went cold turkey and don't train at all. So clearly the environment we were in um, caused some guys to actually train less and some guys to train a lot more. Well, I wonder what the, um, the secret is for uh, the longevity aspect. If they're, they're, they're finding they're in a new environment, obviously, but something's still clicking for them. Yeah, I mean, one of the guys I wrote about in the book was one of my training partners. And he kind of stagnated in college after coming in as a very big recruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
you know, I think there were differences in his my ability to to respond to the training we were being given. At the same time, I think they instead of kind of just saying, okay, well, he's stagnating. That's that. They sh- the coaches should have introduced practice variability there because he had stopped improving. But once he got out of college and was in charge of himself again, he started mixing it up and trying different things, and and actually made uh, the world championship in the duathlon. So he was clearly not done. I think he just needed some some training changes. Yeah, I think people become afraid to uh, go against you know the traditional approach to training. Uh, the coaches are afraid to mix things up. I mean, some of our best workouts in high school running group was when, you know, we'd just go to the beach, like thinking it was going to be an off day or something. And we'd make up little follow the leader chase games into the water and running down the beach. And by the time you're done, it was a better workout than if you'd stayed at the track and banged out the usual interval workout that everybody dreaded. So um, I think for the the average listener out there who's got fitness and athletic goals, um, it's absolutely okay to, you know, um, try all kinds of different assorted things that work toward enjoying it and having a passion for it. Completely. And I mean, that is a form of practice variability because, you know, you'll maybe when you were doing that, your hips were a little sore the next day and you realize those weren't muscles that you were, if you ever played like beach football or anything, that, that you weren't working when you were on the track. And actually Pam Reed herself, you know, who's one Badwater is one like very prominent uh, ultra endurance events is a huge proponent of like using whatever few minutes you have at a gap in your day as, as using that for some fitness, however you're going to do it. Like not having to say, okay, well, these, this is my hour or two hour window after work and I either make it or I don't. But using the times you have to, to create things, uh, you know, it doesn't, doesn't have to be perfect to get started on, on doing some fitness activities. Yeah, good example. No, no, no need for excuses. And when you mentioned bad water, I'll just uh, clarify that that's this crazy 146 mile run across Death Valley, ending up in the Sierra Mountains. And she won the whole thing, right? She beat all the men one time. Uh, I think she finished. Or she like third overall. I think she finished or something. second overall. Yeah, yeah. second just or third overall. I unbelievable. Mean, yeah, she she once ran. She ran 390 laps around like a mile loop in Queens without sleep. I mean, she's obviously quite an outlier, and it's uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. But. An interesting dopamine system going on yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. She actually is so curious about it that she'll like try to follow up sometimes with um, what's going on with like these mouse models and journals because she's she's also very curious about herself and realizes <laughs> she's different than the normal person. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, one other thing you did really well in the book was to refute some of this uh, latent prejudice that we have um, toward successful athletes. And we turn on the Olympics and we watch the runners from Jamaica kick butt on everybody, including America, where they're outnumbered in population by, what, 100 to 1 or something. Yeah. And we make More. this uh, reference in the back of our mind that these guys are God's gift, and that's why they're, that's why they're winning the medals is because they were born with um, that talent. And it's not so simple, is it? No, and I mean, like you said before, anyone who lines up at the Olympic 100 meters, right, like they're, they're not normal. Um, and we know from studies of tens of thousands of athletes that slow kids never become fast adults, right? Like if you're going <laughs> to get to the Olympic 100 meters, like you, you have to have some speed, but I mean, even think about someone like a Usain Bolt. If he's born in the United States, there is his favorite sports were soccer and cricket. <laughs> and if he's born in the United States, he's six foot four when he's fifteen years old. 
with blinding speed. There is no way he ends up as a track athlete, right? He's a wide receiver yeah, or he's, he's a basketball player or whatever. So I guarantee there are others of him out there. But what you have in Jamaica is you have this kind of amazing talent spotting system for high school track. High school track is all the rage there. It's not, not pro track. And people act like kind of how college football boosters do here. They see someone from their parish. They go, oh, we don't want to let this kid get away. We have to you know, entice them to our school and so on and so forth. And it becomes this incredible sort of, you know, almost like the feeling of like a pro circuit for the high school kids. And then they have their meet at the end of the year that's 35,000 people packed stands. And it's something that everybody wants to be a part of. So I think they've sort of created this culture that makes it very, very hard for talented sprinters to slip through the cracks, even, even if they try, like you say in bold. You know, so I think they're really making the most of what they have and also have added on top of that in aversion to over-racing that uh-huh. um, I think in some cases the college system here uh, can be prone to for sprinters. Um, so I think they have confidence in their methods enough not to overtrain. Um, yeah, you, you can't say enough about that because so many athletes fall short of their potential due to this regimented high-volume mentality, the 10,000-hour mentality toward training. And you pointed out, or I guess you quoted Usain from his own book, saying that he was lazy and uh, he didn't train as hard as his teammates. And um, you kind of highlighted that as maybe that's not so bad. Yeah, I mean, when I went to see some of his practice, he spent like more time trying to balance a traffic cone on his head than he did, you know, like doing anything else. But the, you know, but one, he did spend a lot of time doing technical stuff on starts, like just practicing starts. And if you'll notice, if you kind of slow-mo him in, in a start, he does this thing that's now being called the Jamaican toe drag, where he actually drags his his back foot along the ground when he takes the first step. And the idea is to keep a very acute angle um, between your, your leg and the track. So you don't want to pick it up much and try to step out. And the Jamaicans do that really well. So he was just practicing that over and over and over and over. So he's really, you know, I don't think it's, I, I think that's part of the reason why he's a better starter than any guy his height has ever been before. Um, but also I think part of his, you know, he won world juniors when he was like 15 years old and that's an under 19 competition. <laughs> so that's incredible because a 15 year old is usually a boy among men in that kind of competition. And so people said, wow, you know, if we can really get this guy to actually train, he'll be great. And so a couple of years later, you know, he's, he's training harder and he's injured all the time. We don't hear from him for a couple of years. So then he switches coaches to a coach who I think, you know, Usain Bolt might call it laziness, but I think part of it is he's, listening to his body and he knows uh you know that when he trained a certain way he was injured all the time and so he laughs it off as laziness but i really think some of it is him knowing himself and having a coach who allows him to act on that well something's working for him and he also seems to be very patient and knowing how to peak at the right time because here he is finally putting up some fast times after he's been struggling for maybe 18 months and oh we're just in time for the world championships coming up yeah yeah you know and, and i think that's so one of his training partners, Johan Blake, um, who was the silver medalist in the last Olympics, is an, is an animal in training. He trains really hard. And Blake really hits the weight room hard. And speaking of peaking, you know, so there's this interesting phenomenon where s- explosive weight or sprint training actually causes some of your type 2B or super fast twitch muscle fibers to convert to type 2A, which is fast twitch but not as fast. And uh-huh. you'd think it would be the opposite, but that's what happens. And then when you stop the lifting or sprint training it comes back up to baseline and actually overshoots before coming down to baseline. So there's a small period 
a little bit after you stop the sprint and weight training where you will temporarily be as explosive as you'll ever be again. And I think Bolt gets out of the weight room early enough to capitalize on that. Whereas you see Blake when he was, you know, when he wasn't injured, he was running his fastest races always like a month after Worlds or the Olympics. Olympics. And I think that's because he was coming out of the weight room too late to capitalize on that, that little physiological uh, glitch or whatever you want to call it. Wow. Yeah. Adaptation, something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the endurance athletes have found, I've had a few anecdotes myself where you go out and do a, a really long training day and then the next day you think that you're going to be tired, but you actually, you know, deliver peak performance just because whatever the blood volume's higher, the stress mm-hmm. hormones are circulating. So there's some tweaks here and there, but I think, um, a lot of this discussion has led to sort of a, um, a conclusion or a summary at this point that individualization is is the main deal here. There's no secrets or templates really. Yeah. And I think in, and that goes back to something you were mentioning earlier, right? Is like, you know, mixing up practice. And, and I think a lot of the reason why some athletes like don't improve when they get to college is, is it's efficient for a coach basically to have these sort of cookie cutter programs and throw everyone into them and just take through the people who survive because they don't actually need every runner. Right. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> right. But, but I don't think it's like a, a surprise that individualization is actually the best way to go. You know, if we look at you know, some of the most important findings that have come out of um, medical genetics since the sequencing of the human genome, it's to find that, you know, because of differences in your gene involved in acetaminophen metabolism from mine, you might need three Tylenol to get the effect that I only need one. Or you might not metabolize it at all. So you might not get any effect from it. And it's looking very, very similar for the medicine of any type of training, which is that people's genetic differences mediate how much effect they'll get and, and what's the best training plan for them. So I really think we should all view our training plans. Like there are certain fundamental things that, that everyone has to do, but that as we get better, we should view our training plans as kind of this exploration of self where you're, you know, kind of working your way, whether it's directly or take a step in the wrong direction and a step in the right direction toward the specific program that is best for your completely inimitable physiology. So that means a lot of trial and error, a lot of record keeping and observing, and maybe, you know, being more open-minded rather than just opening up a book or, or you know, blindly following the, um, the template of the program that you're participating in if you're a, a young runner or, or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason why uh, exercise fads and diet fads and so on <laughs> rotate so much. And I think part of it is because they never work for everybody, even if everybody's doing the same thing. You know, that's what we're seeing in these genetics training studies is two people doing the exact same training can have like a hundred percent difference, um, in their, in their improvement or their trainability. And right. so I do think you have to be more open-minded. You know, I mean, I guess you can do certain things to get some clues if you're crazy like me and want to get like muscle biopsies and stuff, but that's still not going to tell you a lot of what you want to know. So I think being open-minded, paying attention when something's not working as well for you as it is for your training partner, you know, and I know nobody wants to feel like they're trial and erroring because it sounds like it's sort of wasting time, but I, but I think it's sort of essential if you're going to end up finding uh, the program that's best for you and, and, and sort of keeping, uh, you know, keeping training diaries sort of thing. So you can, I think you start, it helps you get a sense of what is actually working for you and what works with you, works for you from season to season. Excellent. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit because you just wrote a very interesting and lengthy article on a topic that's been on the minds of a lot of uh, sports fans in recent years, and that's doping, performance-enhancing drugs in sports. Uh, but first, tell us about 
the forum where this article appeared, ProPublica. How did you get into that? Yeah, so ProPublica, um, where I work now, is a, a, I used to be at Sports Illustrated, is a nonprofit um, journalism started up maybe five or six years ago by a guy who was running the Wall Street Journal and the investigative editor of the New York Times, with the idea being just to house reporters who um, work on long projects. You know, m- most of us like working with data, too. Um, and, you know, we then place those those projects with other media. We partner with other media. So in this case, I was partnered with the BBC, and we we, did, we produced a film, um, a three-part film about doping, and then I also wrote a companion article uh, about our investigation um, into uh, you know, the team coached by, the Nike-sponsored team coached by Alberto Salazar, who's probably the most prominent uh, track coach in the world, um, and looking at, uh, you know, allegations of, sort of misuse of of medications for performance advantage, allegations by former athletes there of doping and, and um, you know, sort of skirting the intent of rules or, or actually just um, breaking the rules, basically. Yeah, it was pretty, it's pretty tricky stuff because it wasn't as cut and dried as, um, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong being, right. people confessing that, um, you know, there's needles all over the place in cycling. Um, right. And so... Not to get a little, not to get too nuanced here, but you wrote this lengthy article. If you're interested in this subject, definitely read it on ProPublica. And then um, Salazar issued a pretty lengthy rebuttal, and he did a, I'd say a, a fair job of covering his ass. But it also brought up even more questions and suspicions. And I just wonder um, how how you feel about the whole scene now after seeing your subject respond pretty aggressively. Yeah, I, I wish he would have. I mean, we sent him, you know, these like reams of questions a month. I think it was twenty-seven days in advance of publication. We kind of wish that he would come on the come on the film for the interview. Yeah, really. um, but I'm still glad that he that he put a a detailed response out there. And I think, for the most part, the response confirmed, except in one case, he confirmed the facts that we alleged and disputed the interpretations of the people who worked with him. So, for example, yeah. He confirmed having tested testosterone gel on his sons in the Nike lab. <laughs> Whoops! Could you repeat that? <laughs> and of course, made a made a, a convenient excuse for that that he was he was uh, testing to determine how how easy it would be to sabotage one of his athletes by patting him on the shoulder and having a handful of cream. Right, and I, I st- and and at the time when that sort of thing was alleged in relation to Justin Gatlin, he said that it was preposterous, you know, and I, I still want an answer about how testing it on your sons in the Nike lab would protect you from sabotage. So I still don't understand <laughs> that part, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe that, that was the case. Maybe that's what he was doing, but even so, I think that's going to, you know, could potentially be problematic, um, for him. And, you know, he admitted to hiding, like prescription painkillers and magazines and books to to ship them overseas um, to to avoid customs, and I think you know even though those prescription painkillers aren't on the banned list, you know in some cases they're going to people who don't have prescriptions, and so I'm curious to see how UK Athletics. I think they're they're going to make a determination on um, whether he's still going to be a consultant to them soon. I'm curious to see how that plays out, uh, but overall, I think what I'm glad occurred is that it seemed to open a conversation not about banned drugs right like there's a lot of conversation about that but about how we should approach um, medicine and medical exemptions um, 
when they may be being used for performance enhancement or for people who don't otherwise under normal conditions need those medications. And I think that was an important discussion to open. And so that's, that's the part I'm most glad about, irrespective of, um, you know, the sort of specifics of, of Alberto Salazar. Oh, sure. And it just, it also reveals um, what a gray area this is, because you can go get a doctor to say, hey, your thyroid's screwed, you need this, and you need this, and you need this, and be playing by the rules. But, um, you know, the moral objections of, you know, all these things come into play. And, um, you know, one one of the ideas um, that Mark Sisson and I have talked about on a previous podcast with Mark's sort of frustrating experience presiding over the um, anti-doping efforts of the sport of triathlon for many years, um, you know, one thing he suggested was, wait a sec, maybe we should just, you know, help these athletes legalize some of these performance-enhancing agents so that they can preserve their health as best as possible. For example, if you're riding the Tour de France, um, one of the most unhealthy things you can do to the human body, by the way, um, would, it, would all the riders be better off if their hematocrit were pegged in the high 40s so they could have maximum red blood cell oxygen carrying capacity during this, you know, physically destructive event. Yeah, and to be honest with you, speaking of that, I'm, I'm totally open to that discussion. Speaking of that hematocrit, you know, because they're not supposed to start if their hematocrit's over 50, the proportion of their bloodstream that's red blood cells. Right. And, and that's claimed to be for their health reasons, but I don't totally believe that. I think it's an attempt to, you know, not have like a blatant doping case because there are athletes like in cross-country skiing who have had hematocrits way higher than that, and they're documented to have had those over time and be normal. You know, 50% is high, higher than that is the highest I've seen. Um, and, you know, they're not, they're not dropping dead or anything like that. Um, yeah, what was the, um, the red, co- red complexion guy from uh, Finland that you went to visit that had all the medals from, um, yeah. from cross-country, and he was, he was determined to be a, somewhat of a genetic uh, freak with his incredibly high hematocrit? Yeah, I mean, he had his hematocrit would get into the mid '60s, and he had a gene mutation that caused his receptor for the hormone EPO to to over respond to the natural levels of his hormone and just like crank out red blood cells. Um, and you know, members of his family had that. Some of members of his family had it. So he won seven Olympic medals. He won some races in in at the Olympics in margins that have never been uh, never been equaled since. And, you know, like one of his nephews who has the condition was also an Olympic gold medalist in cross-country skiing. A niece was a world junior champion. You know, people who didn't have it in the family weren't good uh, racers. They dealt just fine with this overabundance of red blood cells. But, but I do think you have a point. You know, I think, I think there's some drug, doping drugs that would be kind of hard for a sport to legalize because t- steroids, for example, are, are Schedule three controlled substances in the United States. So it's not the sport's purview to to be allowed to kind of trump the law of the land, at least in the United States. Um, but others, I think there are things on the banned list that are not performance enhancing and things that aren't on the banned list that are performance enhancing. And I don't advocate taking the rules into your own hands because all sports are is just, you know, a contrivance with agree, take agreed upon rules and add meaning. <laughs> but I certainly think there should be a more open discussion uh, with multiple parties, including athletes, giving feedback into, into how we should treat those substances and the band list. Well, we'll see what happens in the future. And speaking of that, what's what's up with you? Are you what, are you working on a new book, new exciting articles? Where are you headed? Well, I'm working on some articles, but by nature of being investigative stuff, I guess I shouldn't talk about it too much. But um, books, I'm like on step like seven of twelve to recovery from my first book. So yeah, yeah. I've 
I've again, you know, when I was finishing, it, it was kind of reminded me of the 800. It's like in the middle, it was torture. And if at the end you think you did pretty well, you're like, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. Maybe I'd do it again. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm getting toward where I've opened the, uh, the notebook again to start jotting down sort of possible book ideas. And, and one, I added an afterword uh, to the paperback version of my book about specialization in youth sports and all the data piling up, suggesting that actually starting with diversity um, and going to specialization is is the way to go for skill development, not just for for health and, and a feel-good message. And I've kind of gotten interested in that inside and outside of sports, this idea of diversifying first before specializing, since I think in most things in society we're moving towards specializing as quickly as possible. Uh, so that's kind of a, a broad idea that I'm thinking about now that I'd like to develop a bigger project on. Oh, boy. I mean, you could apply that to the world of academia, because now with the technology and the economy changing so much, you know, in my generation, I'm an old guy, 50, um, you know, you'd go to college and most people's focus was what's your major and what job are you going to get uh, for your duration of your career after you graduate with that major? And, you know, for example, I majored in economics, accounting emphasis, And my accounting career lasted 11 and a half weeks until I decided I hated it and wanted to be an athlete. And so um, that was sort of, you know, it didn't play out as intended. But so many people, you know, they they stay with the same company for years and decades. And now I think today's college student, it's probably an entirely different future ahead. And maybe the specialization of education and learning some distinct skill might not be as valuable as just broadening, you know, staying broad for as long as possible. Yeah, I, I kind of agree, or at least I think that's interesting. I don't know what, if there's rigorous work on it says, but, you know, whenever I see articles about Facebook is looking for philosophy majors and things like that, you know, it's like the biggest problems uh, around seem to be very much interdisciplinary problems. I um, mean, even if they require specialists in certain areas, I think those there's more value on on specialists who have some facility working and thinking in other areas as well. So I'm kind of interested in that generally. I'm hoping there's some rigorous research done on it. Yeah, really. Well, um, we'll, we'll have some research coming in now where you, you hear the talk about how, you know, India and China and their large populations are now training highly skilled um, students to come and, you know, take over some of the, um, the, the technical careers that um, have long been you know, a gravy train for uh, American uh, workers. So we'll see. We'll have some research playing out in the next 20 years, huh? Yeah, yeah. So Dave Epstein, thank you so much for joining us, author of The Sports Gene. Definitely grab that book if you're interested at all in the subject. It's fascinating, extremely well-researched, and he's been pounding the pavement, traveling all over, promoting this thing, and I think it's still got a long life ahead of it. So keep up the great work, and thanks for having having the time to spend on the Primal Blueprint podcast. It's my pleasure, and thanks for being persistent and patient. Um, I'm I'm glad it, it worked. All right, Dave Epstein, thanks for listening. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Are you someone who appreciates a fast, casual dining experience? Is it important that the taste of your food and the freshness of the ingredients take center stage? Well, bringing that experience to a table near you is the mission of the hottest new franchise concept in North America. Primal Kitchen Restaurants. If you want to learn more about this one-of-a-kind franchising opportunity, go to PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com. That's PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com.